Hey, you know, baseball playoffs are looming. And I was thinking about baseball this week, and I thought about the nicknames baseball has. You know, baseball has some really great nicknames, whether it's, you know, Shoeless Joe to the Babe or, you know, Stan the Man to El Hombre, or whether you're talking about Hammerin' Hank, you know, who was also known as Bad Henry, or whether you're talking about, what's that? Who's that? The, yeah, the panda, you know, Pablo Sandoval. I mean, they come up with all these names, right? You know, there's so many, or the Sultan of Salt, the Sultan of Swat to the Sultan of Surly, which was Barry Bonds. Um, so they have all these different nicknames, some of them local, and these names, sometimes they stick. You know, Willie Mays was to say, hey, kid, we're going to go Giants or something, or the Stretch McCovey. But sometimes they stick. Most of the times they don't. In real life, it's the same thing, right? You know, we get nicknames. Sometimes they stick. Most of the time they don't. And in the Bible, that's true too. And there are sometimes people who become better known for their nicknames than for their real name. That's pretty rare. And there are a couple examples of that in the Bible, but the one that stands out the most to me is Barnabas. Barnabas wasn't his name. In fact, his real name is only mentioned once in the Bible when he's introduced to us in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, and we're told his real name was Joseph. But he became known as Barnabas. And he became known as Barnabas. That was so much of a name that that just everybody started calling him Barnabas. And that became his name from that time forth. What do we know about him? Well, we know that his original name was Joseph and that he was from a place called Cyprus, which was an island in the southeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, just off the coast of Syria. And that he was a Levite. His family were Levites. So they were from the tribe of Levi. And the Levites were the ones that were responsible for taking care of the temple. So if they're taking care of the temple in Jerusalem, what are they doing in Cyprus? They would have been driven there by Jewish persecution against the Jews, which is called the Jewish dispersion. So his family fled and they went to Cyprus. Sounds like they had money because he has an aunt or sister, probably a cousin named Mary. And she had a large house. In fact, Mary is central to the Bible. Peter stays in his ho- her house at one point, and it sounds like he goes there for a prayer meeting. It sounds like it was one of the headquarters of the church. It was a really big house. It had to be to hold all those people. Some people think it was actually the place where they, Jesus had his last supper, which we're going to be celebrating later today. And so there was money in the family. So that much we know about him. He had money. He was Jewish. He lived in Cyprus. How did he get to Jerusalem? Well, we don't know for sure, but there are different stories that are written outside of the Bible. But we can't verify them with you know, total accuracy, but they sound pretty reasonable. One is that he came there to Jerusalem to study to become a rabbi, which is what you'd normally go to Jerusalem to if you were living someplace else. So he came there to study to be a rabbi, and he would have had another profession. Paul says he always worked at his profession. He just doesn't say what it was. Not a profession, rather his craft. He had some kind of craft that he did, because in those days you always learned some kind of craft to go along with your profession. So he did something to pay his way. We don't know what it was. And the legend is, it's not for certain, but the tradition is, it's probably the better word, the tradition is that he actually was um, trained by Gamaliel. I mean, that was like going to Harvard. Gamaliel was the greatest teacher of the rabbis and the same man that Paul studied under, but Paul studied under him later. So he's a few years older than Paul, may have run in the same circles and may have actually known each other. The other... I think this is reasonable to believe that Jesus came to Jerusalem, Barnabas liked what he heard, and he followed him up to Galilee and became one of the 70 disciples. And then when he came back to Jerusalem, he would have been among the 120 people to start the original church. 
He grows in leadership within the church, may have been one of the first elders under James, uh, the brother of our Lord. And we're going to talk about him today a little bit because we've been going through the book of Acts and we're nearing the end of it. And if you look at the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters are basically about Peter and the next 15 are basically about Paul and then the rest of it kind of overlapping those is really about Barnabas. It's the only place that we really have much information about Barnabas, but admittedly some of the things we said is speculative today, but the stuff we're going to talk about from this time forward for the most part is really pretty black and white. Uh, it's going to be right there in the Bible. And we're going to look at his life because from what we understand is his life ended around the year A.D. 61. And we're at this point in Paul's life, we're around the year A.D. 58. So it's right nearing that same time. So we've talked about him in the past and thought, you know, it'd be good to do a summation of his life, just kind of wrap his life up before we go forward and wrap Paul's life up. You ready for that? I, I, it's a fun one. Because Barnabas is always fun because the thing about Barnabas is what his name means. Do you remember what his name means? Luke says it means son of what? Encouragement. And that's a great word. That's a fun word to talk about. And that's, that's his life is wrapped up with encouragement. Uh, the word perikaleo is the word you get encouragement from. And from that we get the word paraclete. And sometimes maybe some of you have read that we talk about the Holy Spirit as the paraclete. And in context it means as the comforter. Most literally, the word perkaleo means to come alongside someone. You ever have somebody come alongside you when you were afraid to do something? You say, I just, I can't get up on that horse. I can't take that test. I can't go out on that field. I can't play that instrument in front of all those people. And there's somebody that comes alongside you and gives you courage. You can do it. You ever have anybody like that in your life? That's what this person is like. When everything falls apart, this is the person you want to come to because you know they'll comfort you. And when you need a good swift kick in the bottom, this is the person that exhorts you and helps you do that. That's the kind of person that Barnabas apparently was. We're going to talk about that today as we talk about Barnabas the encourager. And we're going to just look at some passages on his life. And we'll talk about how did Barnabas encourage. And the first place he encouraged, we're not going to read this one because we're just kind of, it's, it's very brief, talk through it. But uh, in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 to 37, we'll see that he encouraged through giving. Um, so we're going to look at, we're, we won't look at every passage today, but I'll tell you what we'll be looking at is Acts chapter 4, verses uh, 36 to 37. The first example we have of him after he's introduced is we're told that he had a lot of property and he sold it. Um, this property that he sold was either in Cyprus or probably in Jerusalem and it must have been worth a great sum or it wouldn't have been mentioned and he gives it to the church so he sells what he has takes everything that he got from it and he gives everything away to the church and the Bible mentions him for the first time and says that he was called the son of encouragement Have you ever heard stories about people that give property to a church or give an extreme amount of money to something? How does it make you feel? How would you feel today if somebody said after the church service and we were able to announce next week, we just have a, we, somebody just gave us a new building and property. We're ready to move in. Or somebody just, yeah, you start clapping. What if I stood up and said, somebody just gave us 
$100,000. What would you do? Would you say, oh, that's interesting. Or would you wake up or, you know, what, what would you do? You'd be pretty excited, right? It would encourage you. I don't know if you ever think of it that way, but actually giving to people, just like when people give you a good gift on your birthday or Christmas or something, it, it encourages. Giving can encourage. And Barnabas was one of those guys that encouraged through giving. Now, you might say, well, that was just a one-time deal, but it's not. Because the, we go down later to Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. And in Acts 11, 27 through 30, Barnabas is working as a pastor of a church in Antioch. And he finds out from Agabus the prophet that there's going to be a great famine in the land of Judea. So what he does is he gets all the people in his church and in the community to raise up money for this cause. And he raises money and probably other things to provide for them. And then he takes his associate, a guy named Saul, who later becomes known as Paul, and they travel hundreds of miles uh, down you know, to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they give the money to them and say, distribute this to all the other churches in Judea. He didn't go to Samaritan's Purse, right, or, or to one of these other agencies because they weren't in existence. As far as we know, he is the first Christian relief worker in history. When you see those commercials on television, give to our cause because we can help people, kind of all started with Barnabas. He's the one who first got everything together and gave money to people who were in need. And he's been an inspiration for us. I mean, we as a church try to take care of those in need. There's so many now. Have you noticed that? It's been scary lately. You know, it started off with Texas, I think. And then we had the hurricane over in Florida. Then the horrible earthquakes in Mexico City. And the poor Caribbean has just gotten clobbered, especially Puerto Rico. We didn't know where to give, but we have money set aside because of the example of Barnabas, that that's what the church does. And so we're going to give $1,000 to our friends uh, in Alamar, which is a suburb of Havana in Cuba. And we mentioned that, I think, a couple weeks ago. I just want to, or last week, I want to remind you of that and be praying for them because we ministered to with them this summer, and they've lost homes. And they are really, and they don't have an infrastructure to help them. And they're really hurting. So please pray for our friends uh, in Cuba. And so we can kind of do, learn a little bit of encouragement from Barnabas. Now, let's go on from there and look at the next way he encouraged. The next way that he encouraged was uh, he encouraged through pastoring. He was a good pastor. And pastoring, you don't have to be professional to pastor to people, to care for people in special ways. And what happened is when the church began to expand and they said, we're going to be reaching out not to Gentiles or non-Jews, well, the church that grew the fastest was in Antioch, in ancient Syria. It's now part of modern, Syria, part of modern, modern um, Turkey because they changed the borderline there. But in Antioch, and you can still go visit there, it was the third most important city in the Roman Empire, but more significantly, it was probably the most multicultural. So, I mean, it makes sense. All these people are, have all these different cultures and all these different religions and stuff, and they hear about this new thing called the Way, and they're checking it out. And they're trying to find out what it's all about. And next thing you know, they're growing. And they've got to do something. So what they do is they send Barnabas to go up and check it out and see how things are going. And we pick up the story for us recorded in Acts chapter 11, verses 22 through 24. And I want to just kind of read through this slowly and look at it as we go. He says, News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Pretty straightforward. 
when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. I want to just stop right there. He saw what was happening, right? And when he saw what they were doing in, in Antioch and he saw it was authentic, how did he respond? He was happy. He was a glad guy. You know, people that encourage are generally happy people. I mean, he was, a, he was up. He's like, this is great. He was ex- very, very excited. So, you know, it's, it, it's just really an example for us to be happy. Of all people, we've been saved for eternity. We have a God who loves us and forgives us for everything. We should be happy people. And, and Barnabas clearly was. And then it goes on and says, not only that, but this is what he did as a result, which really shouldn't surprise us. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. That's what he did. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord. How do you remain true to the Lord? It's all that we have. That was what he learned back in Acts chapter 2. It's what we talk about when we talk about the walk. You, You talk to him, which is prayer. I'm sure he told them, we've got to pray. And talk to them and talk to them how they can pray and talk to God more effectively. And he I'm sure he taught them how to study the Old Testament. And I'm sure he taught them what the apostle Peter and others had taught him. We believe, I believe that Peter was probably his main mentor because there's a close relationship between them at several different points. So I'm sure, you know, he taught them those things. I am sure that he told them, let's get together after church and all hang out and let's take communion, let's take the Lord's Supper together, let's build relationships with each other. That's clear. And let's train you in things. Let's, let's get things going. Let's get in our small groups and do things. That's what he's doing, basically. Uh, and then the other thing is let's reach out to those people around us and care for their needs and love them and minister to them. That's what he was doing. And so after you hear that part of it, um, you move on, and he says that, uh, that he was a good man. And I want to stop there, and I want us to focus on the fact that he was a good man because it's the only place in the New Testament that any person is called a good man. In Greek, it means essentially he was a man of honesty and integrity. That's pretty cool. Would you like somebody to say that about you? The only guy that it's said about. He must have been a man of great character. And then we're told why. Um, it was because he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Throughout the, chapter, the Acts, in almost every chapter, it describes God in three ways. It says that there's one God in heaven who manifests himself in three persons. He sends God the Son, Jesus to earth, dies for his sins and rises from the grave back to heaven, and then he sends God the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sins, who comes to live within us and enables us to come to know Christ, and who is there to guide and direct us in life. But there's a caveat here. Will we trust him, or will we still try to do it on our own? Do you understand that? If you've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have power unlimited inside you. The question is, will you trust that, or will you try to live on your own? And the cool thing about Barnabas is he placed his faith, he placed his trust, in God. And that's why he was a great man. He wasn't a great man because of who he was. He was a great man because of who God was in him. 
The next thing we see about Barnabas is what happened as a result of all of this. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. I remember we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I, I just want us to reflect on this a little bit more. Why were a great number of people brought to the Lord? I'm sure he was an effective preacher, but it doesn't say it was because he was a great speaker. It doesn't say because they had a great worship program. It doesn't say because they had a great children's program. It doesn't say because they had some great outreach program. It doesn't say because they had great concerts and programs and everything else at their church. It says because people were encouraging people, basically. People were encouraging people. They were getting to know each other and they were helping each other spend time in prayer and study the Bible and encouraging each other and taking care of each other's needs, loving on each other and loving on the people, the people in their households, the you know, 8 to 15 people that God had placed in their life, inviting them to church, and the church was growing. Isn't that amazing? seems like we, we don't talk about that that much anymore in church. That's not, that, that's not the focus of church today. Because churches have become so professional and institutionalized that we've lost the example that we had at the very beginning. Um, there's a guy who's a noted Reformation historian, and as his name comes up, I think uh, you'll understand why I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Um, but he said, as we advance through the centuries, light and life begin to decrease in the church. Why? Because the torch of the scripture begins to grow dim and because the deceitful light of human authorities begins to replace it. You see, what happens is we begin thinking, how can we add to this and build it up? And it's pretty soon we get away from what it said in the beginning. So we need to get back to the basics. The only place in the Bible where there is a narrative that describes how a pastor functions in a church is this one. So it seems that we should pay attention to it. Next thing he tells about us is that he encouraged others to encourage. Um, and by this, Barnabas was a guy who invested his life in other people and helped rise them up that they might succeed. In this sense, he's very much like John the Baptist uh, when G John the Baptist was speaking about Jesus and he said, he must become greater, I must become less in John chapter 3, verse 30. And that was sort of his M.O., he was always trying to help others become better. And he had this ability to see a diamond in the rough. He could see a person that nobody saw anything in, and he saw something special in them. And he was able to develop sometimes unlovable people and enable them to become great people. The first example we have of that is found in uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 27. Paul was still known as Saul. Three years earlier, he had been persecuting the church. And now he comes back to Jerusalem for the first time. And guess how many people want to get together with him and hear his story? Nobody wants to talk to this guy. He's a, you know, former murderer as far as they're concerned. He's a horrible guy. Barnabas is the one who reaches out to him. Some people say, well, maybe he did know him before and they had this friendship. But if he knew him before, he knew him as a brilliant but surly, moody, intense, angry young man. I wouldn't want to go meet with that guy. But Barnabas does. He hears his story. 
and he brings him to Peter and James, the brother of the Lord, which again indicates that he was probably in leadership circles and that he had a close relationship with Peter. And they hear his story. And then uh, Paul goes off, and later Barnabas becomes the pastor of Antioch. And when he's in Antioch, he remembers that Paul told him that he had been called by Jesus to serve the Gentiles. He was supposed to be the, the man who would have the special ministry. To the, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And he remembers Paul as a person, that he was absolutely brilliant. You know, he, he, he was, his understanding of the Old Testament was brilliant. I think that Paul, if he had continued to be a rabbi, he would have been greater than Gamaliel, from what we know. He was just an incredibly brilliant man. But beyond that is he had this understanding of what had happened with the Gentiles and how to make that clear, how to get a theology behind it, how to explain the transition from Judaism to, being, to Christianity within gen, the Gentiles. And he knew that he could help do this. He had a special calling and preparation for this. So you know what he does? He places a phone call to him. And he says, hey, could you get on over here? You can't do that, right? So he sends him a text. No. How, how is he going to contact him? He's a, over 100 miles away in a seaport city where he grew up called Tarsus in modern-day Turkey. He has to walk hundreds of miles, knock on his door and say, hey, will you come with me? you come out and play with me? And, and uh, Paul says, yeah. And he takes him all the way back to Antioch, and the two become a team. And they concentrate primarily in small group settings and developing and training their people for ministry. And Antioch becomes, I think you could easily say, the most effective church in the New Testament as he trains others to do that ministry. Now, what happens is it's during that time that he goes down with his relief. Remember, he brings that relief work, that, all that money and stuff down to J Jerusalem. Well, he goes down with Paul to do that. And while he's there, he visits Mary, his cousin that we mentioned earlier. And Mary appears to be a widow. And she has a young son who's now grown to manhood, in early manhood, by the name of John Mark. And he appears to be a somewhat timid young man without a lot of direction, but a lot of love for Jesus. Barnabas does not appear to be married or ever had, had been married or had family, so he takes this guy in as a spiritual son. He says, come with me back up to Antioch. I'll take care of you. And so he goes back up to Antioch with, with Paul and with John Mark, and then there's three other people that come into the picture. So now he's taking care of Paul, Mark and he's taking care of Paul, but there's three other guys. And the three other guys are Simeon the Niger, um, Lucius of Sereni, and Manian. They are now the elders of the church in Antioch. You know what's significant about that? Manian used to work for the Roman government. And Lucius and Simeon are not even from Palestine, and they're not even from Syria, and they're not from the area. From what we can tell, they're from Africa. These are men that should not have been in leadership in a Jewish movement. But what happened? Barnabas encouraged them and he built them up and now they are the leaders of his church. And you know what those three guys did? They decided to send Paul and Barnabas as their first missionaries. And they were able to go as missionaries because Paul had worked himself out of a job so he could work himself into a new job. And these three men took over. And so Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey and they took Mark with them. 
And they went back to Cyprus where Paul, Saul, Barnabas grew up. And then they went to the Turkey where, where Paul grew up, near where he grew up. And then John Mark, he got scared. And he missed his mother, it appears. So he went back home to Jerusalem. But the other guys forged ahead. And they went up to this place, one place called Lystra. And in Lystra, they thought Barnabas was Zeus of Greek mythology. Why did they think that? He was the king of the Greek myths of all the gods. Probably because there was some kind of a regal bearing about him. He had a natural ability of leadership that you noticed about him. That's what most people said. But there's something that's interesting. We have just a few drawings and things of, you know, pictures, paintings of Barnabas, of what he might have looked like. We have a lot of pictures of what people thought Zeus looked like and statues of Zeus. And guess what? They're similar. Middle-aged man, kind of big and burly, uh, with a full beard and a bald head. And so that's probably what he looked like. Here's something else interesting about him. When he and Paul were going in the scriptures, it always says Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. And then all of a sudden, midway through their missionary journeys, it starts reading Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Very, very subtle. But you understand what's happening there? Barnabas is pushing his student forward. It's all yours now. It's all yours now. You take this. And Paul becomes the leader and, and, and becomes the primary person. When they come back home to Antioch, Peter has come there. And all these Jewish people, Jewish Christians have followed him and they're putting all this pressure on Peter to eat separate from the Christians that are not Jewish. And they have separated. And here we see the weakness of Barnabas. If Barnabas' greatest strength is his love for people, his greatest weakness is his love for people. Right? He just, he's just a people person. He just wants to please everybody. He wants everybody to be happy. Maybe you're like that, or maybe you know somebody like that. And so what happens is he's trying to make everybody happy around him, and, and Peter's probably, like I say, his mentor. So he says, I'll just go with Peter and with all, all my old friends that I know because most of my friends are in this party with the Jewish people and we won't shake the broke the rock the boat. This is what's happening. We'll just let it go. Was that right? He did the wrong thing. He caved in. So Paul comes back and it's recorded in Galatians 2 and he just gives him a blistering rebuke and tells him, what you're doing is wrong. You're going to divide the whole church if we continue this way. We need to live for Christ, not for these laws. Jesus has delivered us from that. You know, that's basically the gist of it. And out of that, um, Barnabas and Peter, they make amends. They, they show that they're good men, and they apologize, and they ask for forgiveness probably. They, we don't have all that, but we know that they regroup with Paul. And ultimately, this problem continues, and they go down and have the Jerusalem council, and they resolve it, and they take care of the theology, and they have some practical uh, um, advice on how to do that and Peter's there and John is there and Barnabas is there and Paul is there and they're the peacemakers who set everything up and it moves on from there. They go back to Jerusalem for this council and when the council's all over Paul goes and visits who? His cousin Mary. And guess who's at Mary's house? Her baby boy who is Mark. Remember he ran back home to mommy. And what does Barnabas do? He puts his arm around him and says, I forgive you. Come with me and let's start over again. 
and takes him back up with him um, to Antioch. And then Paul says, let's go on another mission. And Barnabas says, yes, let's go. And let's bring Mark. And what does Paul say? No way am I going to give that guy another chance. And they, sadly enough, they have an angry battle with each other. They just yell it out at each other. Now, they break off at this point, but I believe there's indication from Paul's letters that he was in communication with Barnabas. So I believe that they did make amends and were communicating with each other later. It seems like the big problem is they're arguing about Mark, right? But you know what? I think it was really just that it was time for Paul to go off on his own. And Paul goes off on his own. And with frenetic energy, he becomes this dynamic evangelist who goes through most of the northern uh, Roman Empire. And he becomes this great church planner. We're still studying how he planted churches today. And by the way, the churches that he sets up, the government and the way they function was all based on what he learned from Barnabas. And that's what's been passed down to us today. Barnabas was kind of their pastor of the church. And then he goes on beyond that and he becomes the primary writer in the New Testament and the theologian of the church and he becomes kind of this gentle, tender, tough but tender, uh, somewhat you know, eccentric and quirky but lovable great apostle. How much of that was because of the training he received from Paul, from Barnabas, helped to transform him as a man? Barnabas hangs out with Mark. He takes him with him and they go to Cyprus, his home island and stay there for the next 10 years. Some people wonder if he did any writing. Do you think he did any writing during that time? He had 10 years. Did he write anything in the Bible? What would he have written? About 200 years later, Tertullian, the great church leader, said he was the man who wrote the epistle of Hebrews. So when you go in Hebrews, he wrote it. The problem is, is that at the time, they didn't know who wrote Hebrews. And it seems that if he wrote it, being as famous as he would, well, surely they would have known that. Would makes a lot of sense. It just fits almost perfectly for him. But it just seems unlikely because they didn't know that at the time. Some think he wrote the Gospel of Barnabas or the second Gospel of Barnabas. Have you ever heard of those? They pop up every once in a while. Um, they happened probably hundreds of years after his life they were written. So he, no, he did not write them. So we don't know of anything he wrote. We know that what happened from what we have, this is outside, but it seems reasonable from the things that we have. There's several different accounts that correlate and pretty much say the same thing is that while he was on the island there, some Jews from Syria in about the year A.D. 61 um, went over there to see what was going on. And they saw the tremendous success that he was having in his ministry in Salamis, one of the key cities there. And they found him preaching, I think, in a Jewish temple. And so they dragged him out of the temple. They tortured him. They gave him inhumane torture and stoned him to death. And that's how his life ended. John Mark witnessed it and actually fled afterwards and he went to Rome, which is also evidence that to know that Paul was in Rome, Barnabas had to be communicating with Paul. And he went to Rome and he found Paul, buried the hatchet with him and became his friend and his servant. And Paul writes later, and even in his last letter in 2 Timothy, how valuable Mark had been to him. Mark developed a ministry of coming alongside and helping others more as a servant uh, and just whatever he could do. Peter will come into Rome and Mark will line up with Peter. Peter speaks of him as his spiritual son. He becomes his loyal lieutenant. He helps Peter probably write First Peter and later he takes Peter's sermons and he puts them together in a book called The Gospel of Mark. Have you ever heard of it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you begin to wonder now, would Paul have been Paul and Mark have been Mark 
And would the church of Antioch and the leaders there have been who they were if it weren't for one man in Barnabas? See how valuable our encouragement is to other people? And by the way, there's one more man. He was a physician, a young physician, as we look at the record, who must have been in Antioch when Paul was teaching and later became a missionary with Paul and served as the pastor of the church in Philippi, which is probably where he got his, his uh, medical training. And then he becomes a personal attendant to Paul and travels with him the rest of his life. And at the end, he writes a letter of his experience, writes, writes two books, a two-volume book about his experiences. The first is the Gospel of Luke. And the second is the Acts of the Apostles. And the reason why most believe that there's so much written about Barnabas in Acts and why the things that are written about him are so positive and encouraging is because Luke is writing about his own pastor. It's amazing the impact we can have on people's lives by just loving them and encouraging them. So I want to wrap this up by looking at a couple questions for us today. The first one is, do we encourage through our giving? Do we encourage through our giving? I'm not just talking about Christmas and, you know, birthdays, but do we encourage in a way that helps the church? You know, in a way that expands the church. Do, are we giving generously to the church? Are we giving property to the church? Are we giving to people in need and, you know, in places like Puerto Rico or, and so forth and these places that are having trouble? Are we giving, are we those kinds of people, do we give generously of what we have? Now, as we come to this today, and I speak primarily, if you're a visitor, you can plug your ears, but to our own people, one of the things that's interesting is we haven't been giving as much as we normally do. And, and it kind of scratches my head on this because I've just been thinking about this thing. Ah, you know, you don't want to talk about giving, right? You know, nobody wants to talk about giving. Why? Because it's not popular. Why? Because people don't want to, it, 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 it makes them uncomfortable. That's just too close to home, right? But I think that's because, I mean, isn't that the problem, is that we want to take care of ourselves. Sin is taking care of ourselves first. And the main way we do that is by trying to take care of ourselves materially. And the, they didn't have money in the Old Testament, but they had animals. And that's why God said, sacrifice your animals. Because he knew that that got to the heart of who they really were. And I believe the same thing is being told to us, you know, today. You know, they used to give 10% of their, their earnings in the Old Testament. And Jesus doesn't change that. You know, we, we should be giving generously or sacrificially depending on where we're at and what our situation is. But the reason I bring that up today is that this has been crazy. I mean, our attendance appears to have been up. This last year it's been higher than I, more seats been filled than I can believe. And over the, over the um, summer it's been high. We always go, through our egg, always go through our dip at this time, and then you watch in mid-October by November, everybody will be back. And then it usually ramps up till about June. When, when does the heat come? About Jan July. And then everybody sort of disappears. And then it's like that every year. It's like that at every church. But our, we've actually been doing pretty well, but our giving has been down. Uh, and we've been actually, we're, we're fine because we live within our means, but we're like $21,000 less than we were last year. So the only reason I bring that to your attention is I think you should know and it's like, I'll tell you to pray and read your Bible, but I don't know if you're praying or reading your Bible. I assume you are. I hope you are. I, I can't. Yeah, I just tell you what the Bible says, but I, I'm kind of 
obligated to tell you what the Bible says. So when I come to a passage like this and I say, okay, oh, this is interesting. We, we all need to be giving. Yeah, we're a giving church. I always feel good about us because we've always been so generous. But then I saw that and I thought, you should probably know that, right? You know, because if you're not giving, maybe that's showing me that maybe somebody isn't giving. So I'm just telling you that, you know, and here's the thing that we don't do enough of. If people are having financial problems, I'm not, I'm not as concerned about you giving for the church's sake as just for your own sake. If you're having financial problems, please come and tell us so we can help you. Um, there may be people that have those needs, and that, does, that comes up to every once in a while. And you might go to a financial counselor, but better yet, the Bible has some really good things to say. So come talk to me, and I'll get you connected with some people in our church that could help advise you in that, too. And it's less expensive as well. Um, and in addition to that, you know, just, I mean, if, if you're given, don't worry about it. Just pray, and we'll be fine because we always are. Uh, God always takes care of us, but just want to make sure that, you know, everybody, you know, this has come up, so let's make sure that we are given, okay, and being generous with what God has given us. The bottom line is this, that if we give, God's going God's to reward us. And, and this isn't just about giving, but all the things we're talking about here today, everybody wants a promotion, everybody wants their kids to, you know, tell them they're the best parents in the world, everybody wants their spouse to tell them how wonderful they are, everybody wants nice gifts and so forth. Well, none of those things, you could get rid of all those things because all the most wonderful things people have said to you on earth, all the most wonderful gifts people have given you on earth, all the most wonderful rewards you have given on earth will mean nothing when you stand before God. And what will matter the most is when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And that will far surpass anything you get on earth. And so we need to be doing that in all areas. We need to be praying, reading our Bibles. We need to be fellowshipping with one another. We need to be witnessing our faith. We need to be um, giving. All those things need to be part of who we are. So, good example by Barnabas there. The second thing is, how important is character to us? In his book, The Road to Character, New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote, the inner struggle against one's own weaknesses is the central drama of life. Truly humble people are engaged in a great effort to magnify what is best in themselves and defeat what is worst to become strong in the weak places. You know, it's, it's really hard to be honest with our strengths sometimes because sometimes we want to be somebody that we aren't, right? And being honest with, this is what I'm good at, even if it's not what I want to be good at, this is what I'm good at. And what's even harder is to be honest with what you're bad at. Yeah. Nobody wants to do that. But I would encourage you to take some time this week to just pray and say, God, what am I best at? And how can I best use that to help others? And what am I worse at? And, and try not to make that the thing that I major on. We don't want to major on the things we're bad at, but how can I improve in those areas? And I also encourage you to look to people. When you're in a position to hire people, some of you, you know, here have people that you hire. Um, and sometimes, you know, we're all responsible for who's who's going to be leading Little League or some other club or group that we're in or who we're going to elect for office and all those different things. When you are in a position where you make a decision for who's going to be in any kind of a position, there's two things you should look for, competence and character. If you have a person of character and they don't know what they're doing, don't put them in that position. You know, we have a tendency to do that a lot of times in church. You know, we say, well, we need to fill a hole here, and this person's a great guy, doesn't know anything about this, but we'll put him there. Don't just fill that position. You're going to ruin that person. But I'll tell you what's more dangerous is to, to hire a person or put a person of competence in a position who doesn't have character. That's dangerous. 
So be very careful of that. If you have to choose between the two, if it's a close call, always pick character. Paul's an, or Barnabas is an example of that. And then who can we encourage today? I encourage you to encourage others. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this. It's funny to me that when we go over, cover passages, like if you go through Song of Solomon and we talk about sex, people who will watch these, you know, X-rated movies and they tell all these sexual innuendo and sexual jokes and everything, if you try to get them to read through one of those books or you try to talk to them seriously, they will blush. It's like an insecurity deal. They can talk about it in a dirty way, but they can't talk about it in a straightforward way. I think that Satan does that. He wants us to think, oh, it's all dirty, it's all bad. Instead of, it's not dirty, it's not bad. It's just, it's a reality. Let's talk about it normally. Can't do that. Something's not right. There's a similar thing that happens with encouragement. Have you noticed how we have trouble when people tell us good things? We just can't handle it. Don't tell me I'm embarrassed. Instead of just saying thank you and being grateful for it. On the other hand, we can tell other people, if we, we don't tell other people things that are good about them. We'll, t we'll cut people down. We'll tear them down and project ourselves. We do that all the time. But how often do we go up to somebody and say, I really appreciate you and love you? Ooh, that's weird. That's weird. You know, that's awkward. I'll tell you what, that's normal. What we're doing is wrong. And it's of the devil. I mean, it's okay to tease people. But I'm tired, and I think you are too, of people that put you down and then usually put themselves up. Can we, can we go to people and tell them today, thank you for watching my kids? Hey, I especially like one of the words in the songs today. I like what you're wearing today. I want to tell you how much I appreciate how much you have encouraged me this last week. You know, can we do that kind of stuff? I mean, it, that's, that's neat. It's, it's rare, but it's a good thing to do. So we need to be encouragers. Uh, the greatest thing is to encourage people that don't know the Lord to just, you know, that blows them away because people just aren't accustomed to you saying, I really appreciate you as a neighbor. I like the way you take care of your place. Oh, it's great how your kids are behaved. I really like the way you help me out and I just enjoy talking to you. And what more encouraging thing can you do to invite them to church or uh, to explain to them, you know, the gospel message, you know, that if they admit that they're a sinner in need of salvation, uh, they believe that uh, Jesus died on the cross and rose to save them, and they choose to follow Christ and put their faith in him alone, that they'll come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to. That's the most wonderful place to start and the most encouraging position to be in. And then finally, who do you pour your life into? Who do you pour your life into? It doesn't have to be a real formal discipleship relationship. As you know, a few weeks ago, my father-in-law passed away, and one of the things that came out at that time, which was really touching to me, is that he and my mother-in-law would have people over to their home regularly. And not everybody's called to do this. They had a gift of hospitality, I believe. But they, they loved to take people that were, in some cases, young enough to be their grandchildren and have them come over to their home. And they would um, stuff them with food, go play ping pong or play a Mexican train game and just love on these people. And when he died, when we were in the the hospital room with him dying, one of those couples came and cried and prayed over him and told us what a difference he had made in their lives. Can you take people under your wing like that? Can you just love on them? 
And especially if you can find somebody and you look at a person, don't look at a person for who they are today, but look at a person through God's eyes of who they could be. And what can you do to help them get there? I have had the privilege of seeing a number of people in my life have some pretty radical transformations just as we've worked with them. I think some of them are even going through that even in this room. And it's pretty awesome when you see that. I know when I first went to college, I was an 18-year-old kid. I was uh, talkative, like I still am, but even more so, if you can believe that. Um, I was annoying. I was opinionated. I was bitter. I was frustrated. I was confused. And for some strange reason, this guy who was four years older than me, who was a senior, uh, named Terry, decided to take me under his wing. And he met with me every week for a year. Um, he gave me a foundation. And my life was changed because of Terry. So you know what Terry does today? He works at uh, Hume Lake Christian Conference Center. And one of the reasons I'm looking forward to going to Man's Retreat this year is because I'll get to see Terry and his wife Sharon and their daughter Allison while I'm there. But I was thinking about that and I thought of this. I thought, you know, I probably wouldn't be going there to that retreat if it hadn't been for Terry spending time with me back there in time. Who is it in your life that has made that kind of difference? And who can you make a difference in their life? You know, there's different roles that we play as leaders in the early church. There were different positions that they played, and there's different roles that we play at MVC. You know, we have Peter the preacher and Stephen, and, and Peter the preacher and John the teacher, and hopefully nobody's Stephen the martyr. Um, we have Philip the evangelist. We have Paul the theologian. But let's never forget Barnabas the encourager. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for Barnabas and for his encouraging life. And I pray that you just help us to be encouragers. That, you know, we'd encourage through our giving, uh, being generous, not just here, but to the people in our lives and to people in crisis, and that we'd give as you would guide us. Uh, we pray that we would encourage one another, lift each other up, support each other, comfort each other, get involved in small groups, get involved in relationships with people that we can really lift them up, even as we would like to be lifted up. We treat people just the way we would want to be treated. Um, and we pray, Lord, that we would find people to pour into and be grateful for the people that are pouring into us to help each of us grow uh, more and more in maturity in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.